Next Chapter Podcasts. Next Chapter Podcasts. Hey folks, welcome back to How I Got Greenland. I'm Ryan Gibson with my co-host Alex Collegian. Let's continue our conversation with writer, producer, Anthony Jaswinski and one of his favorite films, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Join us, shall you? So it's, have you, would you say that your sensibilities have changed? Because it sounds from like what you're saying as you've evolved that you would now, you're now more of a writer producer. You're on the set. Oh, um, no, I'm, a, I'm always, I'm always a writer. Always like a writer. I, first and foremost, I never, I never think, you know, I, I always think to a certain degree about, I, I never be try to be calculating. Um, but I know a, that do you sooner think or later there's certain scenes that aren't going to work. But when you're writing the script, just write it. I mean, there's different, as you guys know, there's different drafts. There's the writing draft, there's the selling draft, there's the development draft, there's the shooting draft and all these things. You know, your, your great underwater scene that was the thing that sold the script. Somebody's going to knock on your door in the office and say, we can't have this. It costs too much money. We have to figure out another way to do it, you know. And you you have a heart attack because, like, you know, the most beautiful girlfriend or boyfriend broke up with you. But then after a few hours, you realize, okay, well, if we scratch that, what if we just have her, you know, lurking under the tunnel way? And that's even more creepy because it's sort of a Hitchcock thing because the audience knows that she's there, but you know, the killer doesn't. And that's all better than the hundred thousand dollar underwater scene. Um, but that's, that's the experience I've gotten. Maybe it's because I haven't done these. That's the, ex- the giant Michael Bay no, movies no, no. of the world. It's every set, well, I, I would say every set under a certain profit or a, a, a budget lumber is exactly like that. And it's better for it, right? When you're on a set where there's unlimited resources, there's limited imagination. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look at the first Family. Star Wars versus Phantom Menace. There's a guy who was limited in his resources versus had everything he wanted limited being in Morocco and building giant sets. No, no, no. But the, it, no, it, it but was yeah, point like sets for $3 and like chewing gum, right. you know, like the reason they said, I can't see a thing in these helmets is because they couldn't see a thing in those helmets. They weren't built for like walking around. So like it's, it's, it's two things, Tony, you had said, uh, it's good to have dissenting opinions in your life. And I think that's true for anyone, any human being walking around, but especially creative people to have that one trusted voice. It's like, it's not your best dude. Right. Yeah, because absolutely. once you get through the other and, side of Hollywood where you become a Tony Jaswinski, there's plenty of bullshitters ready to stand right next to you and tell you you're the greatest thing since sliced bread. Right. So, it's good, and I think that's where the real juice comes. I mean, I can Ryan can probably give you half a dozen examples of something that was an accident or a mistake or, like you said, like a misfire or a misplan, and they come up with some genius fix in the in the moment, and it turns out to be that like breathtaking filmic moment, right? I think to that. I think to that point is and I, I think you hinted at this earlier tony and it happens on the on the screenwriter level and it happens in the production level and it happens in the post production level is that there's the movie you write and then there's the movie you actually shoot and then the movie that actually gets put on screen is the movie that gets edited together and those three things dynamically uh, are going to be very different and it, it's rare, I think, and I think you're speaking to this, and you can speak to this more, is that 
that you that movie that you write a lot of times is a lot different than what you see on screen on a lot of levels. Yeah, and that's because there's variables in everything, and you can, I mean, you can brag about having complete control of a movie, but you rarely do in a way, and maybe you shouldn't. I don't know if it was Sodenberg or was somebody once said, you know, creativity and art's going to fuck you over because it has to. Like sooner or later, you're, it, 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 it's, it's, it's not going to cuddle in, you know, in bed with you. It's not your boyfriend and girlfriend. It's going to move on and you're going to have to sort of deal with the punches of it to sort of get the final, you know, we're speak a little more with, with, with close encounters on this, but I think like sooner or later you have tunnel vision just to get this done. And this whole, this, this whole summer camp of people who are here to, to make a film they add to all that. I know the cliche is it's a collaborative effort, but it really is. And, and I think a lot of props should come out to producers because there's a cliche with producers that they're just like, you know, the guys sitting behind desks who are on phones and they have encyclopedic knowledge of film and they're in the trenches too, like everybody else. And they, the idea it's like when, when the director is not killing it, they're not either. And everybody as everybody invests in the anxiousness of making a film and whether your film is success or not a success at the end of the day, for me, it really is sort of about that experience. Yeah. I'd rather have a success, but I also think that there's, there's a learning step with everything you do. And um, it's like you said, Ryan, it's just like, you're never sure when you go into the car wash, how the car is going to turn out, you know, it's not going to be totally mangled, but you, you know, there might be a scratch that you didn't see from this buffer or whatever, but it, you know, that's a horrible metaphor, but <laughs> the, fact, the fact is like sooner or later you find things in your film that you didn't think you'd find. Because Professional writer, good. ladies and gentlemen, right. similes yeah. and metaphors are flying. That's right. uh, let me just go ahead. Um, I, so I, I, I just, I, I don't want to, uh, you know, I don't want to, I feel like we've kind of missed this, but I guess the question for me is because the show is called Greenlit, Greenlit, um, and you had already made things before, but, and things that have gotten, you know, things that ended up on screen, you, you were successful, uh, in your own right, but what was the moment that was different from, uh, the shallows, like the build up to it, the actual production of it. Did it feel like it was different? Did it feel different? Was it the biggest the, budget that got you on it? Yeah, or was it, or was it the fact that it was so well received and so universally kind of loved by teeny teenagers everywhere? I was going to say teeny <laughs> boppers, and I was like, kids of all ages. That's the phrase. Kids you're of all ages. For. Yeah. Yeah, I, was there like like what, what, you know, what was the moment the, everything clicked in in a way or or just felt different? Yeah. Like this one, yeah, this one was going to pop more than some of your others, maybe. Uh, well, I mean, the premiere when there's <laughs> press people and <laughs> taking interviews, and yeah, that that was. But but even then, like I was so really even terrified. then. <laughs> um, so so before that, you had never done like a. They had a proper because I think I remember this. They had a proper like red oh, no, carpet it was a huge event. Deal. Yeah, no, I, yeah. I mean, I, I've had I've had like indie like eight or nine million dollar films that have been made and like you know brad anderson and i, I did a, a movie that i'm really proud of and um ollie Blackburn. Get plug it what's the movie that's vanishing on 7th street yeah um i, I know brad is in a collective of sort of like you know uh horror you know thriller directors he's just you know session nine i think everybody in your audience needs to see it one time in life if they haven't because it's just one of those monumental um, stunning 
indie horror films. And I was very fortunate and lucky to work with a guy like that. Um, and you guys but, have similar sensibilities that way. Like, yeah, Georgia, absolutely. I mean, I, I think the idea is like, it's, it's like, I don't want to, you know, I, I want I, I, I don't want to cheat the audience, but at the same time, I don't want to give them all the answers too. And right. I, I think if you cheat the audience, that's, you're, you're kind of screwing them. That's not fair. But I also think if you have Easter eggs or ideas in there that if you, if you take a few minutes to try to figure out, you realize, oh, okay, that's kind of what it means. And I think Brad has that same, um, uh, you know, fundamental, um, you know, ideals about sort of belief system. Yeah. But, 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 you know, everything gets ex- existential in a way. Um, I'm sure you guys are going to do like a segment on, on Scorsese once. One of my favorite movies for him is after hours because a lot of people have a problem with that film because they're like, Oh, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's not logistical and he, she, she'd be able to get like, you know, a dollar 50 to get back on the subway. Not the point. It's like after like a half an hour, he starts to say, I just want to live. Like it becomes an existential movie about not him just getting uptown, but him trying to like change his life because he's this sad kind of like one bedroom yuppie in the upper West side. And I think that horror can deliver those ideas too. It doesn't, there, there, there's something to be said for a movie needs to be logical, obviously, but that doesn't mean it needs to be um, exercised of all its, you know, nuance and intangibility too. Um, and- so, and also what I love what you said, you were referring to the protagonist having an existential moment in After Hours, played by Griffin Dunn. In reality, Scorsese himself was having a personal and business existential moment. He had done New York, New York and completely flopped and had lost all the juice that he had in that first run of Mean Streets and Taxi Driver and he was, you know, God's gift to filmmaking and inevitably like us all he ran out of steam and he needed something cheap and quick and easy to do that he would know how to do and basically returned to indie filmmaking with that movie to prove that he had the jam to be in the big leagues. And then after that, went and did Goodfellas and started his next run. So the point is, is that it's great when you <laughs> see how a filmmaker's life and sort of their protagonist's life can sync up and maybe fuel each other in a way. So we were referring to how uh, best laid plans, we all want to control the set and directors and producers and so many smart people are working to get something done. On the set of Jaws, famously, the shark didn't work. And so what did Spielberg do? He, whatever he had in front of him, and he made it work. So in that case, while they were waiting hours and days for the shark to work, he was shooting a suspenseful movie in which you don't see the monster until the end. And all the critics and all the accolades said, what a genius master of suspense. He didn't even show us the monster until the very end. So that was not his plan, but that's, he made good with what he had. Happy accident. Yes. And so we celebrate Steven Spielberg today. Now, Tony, before we talk about his film, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, do you, did you have any, did you have any run-ins with Mr. Spielberg or any professional connections? Uh, no, I mean, DreamWorks had bought a couple of my scripts at one time, and I, you know, he he admired one of the scripts that they were trying to get done. Um, like everything really? in the business, sometimes some something works, sometimes something doesn't. But I've never had any. Um, Did you any actually meet with him or? With Steven Spielberg, no. 
Did, <laughs> nice. Nice. Um, did you just heard through the grapevine that he liked one of your scripts? Is that the, yeah, well, I mean, I know that, I know that the, you know, obviously it's good people to Amblin and we've had been in business, we've done business together and stuff, but, um, I know that, um, uh, we have a mutual friend, Maddie Lesham, you know, and Lynn, they were trying to put together a movie that DreamWorks had bought a, a spec that I wrote. And I know that he had a bunch of conversations with Steven about, you know, the script, um, uh, nice. He's okay. drawn to thrillers, you know. So even after all the big movies, he likes he likes streamlined thrillers. He likes the the old duels. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So the concept of greenlit is is twofold. One is to talk with a contemporary filmmaker about how they got their start, how they function in the business, how they've evolved as filmmakers, right? And and I think we we did that uh, well with Tony. The other part is more the social thing. We all. That's all we do is talk about movies. What movies are getting made? What movies got made? What movies influence us? And if you're on a set, here's the gra- here's the greatest thing of all. Either either yeah, I mean we're 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 self self-acknowledged nerds. All of us, but it starts in film school. It starts in high school. You're you're the AV when nerd. You're kid. the whatever. Yeah. I, I remember mean, seeing Close Encounters when I, there I was you a go kid. when you were a little kid. Same here. Very small child saw it when I was 5 or 6. But the point is, is that then we all now are getting older and we're hearing, Ryan and I made a movie a couple of years ago. I would say 90% of our crew was under 27 and they were, and I was like, okay guys, let's rip off Rosemary's baby for this close up." And they're like, what's that? You know? And it's, it's sad to see. So rather than do this, the typical one. Star Wars, George Lucas, Jaws, Steven Spielberg, uh, The Godfather, Francis Ford Coppola. Close Encounters came about for a couple reasons. One, because serendipitously, Tony, weirdly, out of nowhere, was like, he sent me the scene of the air traffic controllers uh, first, you know, picking up the, yeah, first picking up the UFOs, which he had rightly said, like, this is how you do suspense in film. Like it was just a quick five minute clip. And he's like, you don't need to know anything about this movie or anything about anything. This is how you direct and make a film that builds suspense. Yeah. Keep an eye on that point out I gave you. He's on 122.5. I'll be right back. Voice, but you know he's, he's doing the Allegheny DC seven. We have something on your two four, and at first it's it's very mundane. And there's to me there's power in the mundane. And, and when things start to you know uh, accelerate in that scene, it feels like a three act movie in that one four minutes. Aries 31, descend and maintain flight level 310. Break Allegheny, triple four, turn right 30 degrees. Get on the order of the 45th It's like the, the most suspenseful scene you'll ever see in your life. And um, I could talk to depth about all the, a lot of set piece scenes in, in Close Encounters. I just think that it's, it's a marvelous film. Couple things. No aliens. No flying saucers, no effects, no music. There's no music. Everything is just, we're not kidding here. I mean, that's Oh, such- I just remembered there is one thing that really makes it suspenseful, and that's that the chatter from the pilots goes staticky 
for the pass and it and yeah. that and that is just a moment where you're like did they die are they dead that's how exactly not all of them but some of the executives i've dealt with are very much about set pieces in fact i've had pretty big writers say like basically all we're doing is making sausage you the a sausage is a set piece and the link is just the sort of scene between into the next set piece right and a good example would be like raiders of the lost ark is really like seven set pieces just kind of linked together with some exposition right i mean do you think in terms of set pieces or it's just another thing to be aware of when you're telling a filmic story uh, I, I think in terms of the big concept or just the concept in general like I, I guess I create a scene in my mind, and I and I know where it's going to start and where it's going to end, but I'm not sure it's what's going to be in the middle. Like I'm sure a lot of writers and directors think the same way about that. But a lot of films tend to be vignettes. You know, I think Close Encounters is a good version of a lot of vignette scenes because some of these people you never see them again. Like the ATC guys, it's just about creating suspense from different points of view and creating something that's all going to land at the end for that. And, uh, you know, I've written, I've written scripts to where you, you see the characters and you don't see them again. And you're not sure exactly who the point of view is, but if it feels like that there's, there's different vignettes and set pieces that are leading up to, um, some kind of, some kind of payoff or graduation, uh, I think you've done your homework and I've seen that in, different Spielberg movies. I think, you know, I don't want to like go too much off the reservation here, but you know, you, you can separate Spielberg from the icon and the director. And at the same time, it can be the same person like Jurassic park. It's a big, beautiful amusement park, like movie with all these big set pieces and, and moving pieces, but he does something. He does two things smart. He relies on scenes that, you know, a kid can do without having to like spend a lot of money and he relies on saving the big monsters for later on. Like I'll always remember the cup on the dashboard before the T-Rex comes. You know, I, I forget about the T-Rex, but I always remember that plastic stupid cup that starts shaking. That costs a lot of less money than having this giant CGI for a T-Rex. Yeah, but you're but also one other thing that it's it, it it's going back to sort of like the 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 rules of montage, right? So it's the it's the bumping uh, vibration in the glass, but the cut to the scared eyes. Yes. When the actor or the character sees what we see and they cue us how we should feel. And he has confidence in the reflection that his actors make, I That's think, which, which is really yeah. big. And you can see that a lot, especially in Close Encounters with, with Richard Dreyfuss's face that reflects off certain scenes that he has. Um, and, you know, and let's, even, well, let's go back. Let's go back a step. Yeah. Everything you're saying is absolutely spot on. The, the only, I was just going to bring us to the beginning because the, where the air traffic control scene fits in is that, like you said, vignettes. We start this film... We're all over the globe, right? We don't start with our main character. We start with the mystery, not the person, right? Right. We start in the desert. Is the interpreter with you? 
I'm not a, a professional interpreter. My occupation is cartography. I'm a map maker. Can you translate French into English and English into French? Yes, yes, I explained to the team leader in Villa Hermosa. I'm just a little taken by surprise. It's all Monsieur Loughlin. We don't know anything about this guy. We, all we know is there's a desert and we know we came to a movie. I, it's something that I'm always fascinated with. Have you guys ever seen a movie where you didn't see the trailer? Or you didn't see like an interview or you didn't see some kind of promotional thing about it? Yeah. You have. And you're just fresh eyes. Like what's going to happen next? Uh, well, I remember saving myself to not read too much about what the Matrix is because I thought that was a good marketing ploy. And I, it blew my mm. mind when I saw the film. So that worked right. for me. Yeah, you didn't see any sort of like explosions in the trailer. So Close Encounters comes from an era where I remember the trailer. But they didn't show anything from the movie. It was just that poster of a desert highway with a light glowing on the horizon. I think it was black and white. And it was, they actually shot, they shot the poster. poster. So it's, you're moving down this highway and the glow is building and it's those old 70s like, you're going to be blown away like from the master of horror comes da 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 da. And so when I went in, I was like, what, what, where are we? What's going on? And they, you know, the Sonoran Desert, and then people are speaking Spanish and French, and you, don't, you have no idea what's going on. Then they cut to Roy, the, the uh, Richard Dreyfus character in Indiana. And then the air traffic control is starting to connect the dots. We see these weird globetrotting mystery, mysterious events. Then we see Roy just being Roy, typical everyman in the Midwest. The air traffic control is where the mystery has come to Indiana. And that brings us into Roy's life. But we, like you said, Tony, building sense of dread. What is it? What's going on? And you're pretty good at that yourself. I mean, it literalist script readers and script and, and, and development people would have dinged you and said, I want to see the main character on page one. What are you doing? Who cares about this French guy? Right. I, I think there always has to be a culmination, you know, in, in Spielberg movies, there's even if you, you globe trot around the world, there's going to be a culmination at the end of the day. Um, what I love about close encounters is that you're not sure for a while, who the who the, VO, the POV is, and whether they're a reliable narrator or not. This is a whole psychological thing to get into, but I, I think I wouldn't say Spielberg disowns this movie by any measure. I'm, I'm sure he, he truly loves it, but I think at there's a certain time where he felt that it was a reflection of when he was younger, and it's more about I'm going to like ditch everybody in my life and follow a vision. And maybe he thought that was an irresponsible way of thinking at the time or something. But I do think that there is a director's vision of here about getting sort of the job done. What he marvelously does is he takes an accessible working class character and he gives it the idea where I have something in my head I can't get rid of. And I scribble it and I'm ruining my family because of it and I'm getting fired and I might be having an affair with another person who has the same thoughts and visions that I do, but I have to sort of see it through. Um, you know, the, the, the Truffaut, the French director who plays one of uh, 
you know, the benign like scientist trying to figure out says, why did you come here, Mr. Whatever Roy's name is? And he said, because I need to know. And I think that there's, there's a version of Spielberg in that, in that character, I think, where he needs to sort of get, get that done. Um, And I love it because at the end of the day, yeah, it, 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 it's a huge movie. I guess you could say it's like a, it's a big blockbuster, but it really is an intimate version of one fam- one man that feels like he's self-destructing only to come to realize that he was right and he needs to find a sense of peace and he finds it in his aliens. And I think it was a very private movie um, in its own way, uh, an intimate movie that just became sort of a blockbuster. And that that is really hard to pull off, you know. You know, and part of the reason why we're here talking is that there's the story of the film and then there's the story of the filmmaker that's parallel to that. And it's always fun to see all the different ways that there's touch points in the kind of personal life. Like, here's a guy who was famously a child of divorce and, you know, I, I would say Duel and Jaws showed what an incredible technician and just overall filmmaker the guy is he can just make anything visually appealing take any script and and turn it into gold but what close encounters feels like to me is the first time that he puts himself into it a little bit and he examines those feelings of divorce because in reality he was that little kid in the house that's like why is dad acting funny Roy, I'm sorry about last night. Roy! Roy! Roy, what are you doing? Jesus. You wouldn't pay an arm and a leg for vegetables, would you? Roy! Roy! The plants are fine there! Roy, can you hear me? Hey! What are you doing? Why is dad like breaking up the family? Yeah, I mean, if you guys remember, there's a blowout scene where like the family is like throwing shit at each other and the kids are going crazy. It's really hard to watch. It's like dad's in the bathtub in a cold shower. Yeah. Yes. Dad's going bananas, right? You get this window into this family that's really collapsing. And it is, it is, it's, I, I, I know some people don't feel this way about it, but it certainly hit me is that it's hard to watch. It's hard to watch this guy falling apart. There's also this argument that you're totally right, that in the language of the film, Roy's awakening to a larger world and his eventual dedication to this thing beyond himself is the metaphor of an artist. Like, you want to be a good guy. You want to be a good husband. You want to be a good father and a good worker at your job and a good earner in the American dream. But sometimes you're, 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 you're embraced by this vision, right? It's the itch I can't scratch and I'm tearing my family apart to do it. Then I realize, oh, 
it's about these aliens that I do feel like I have some kind of connection with. And it could have, you know, in, in less capable hands, it could have been two things. It could have been a really bad B movie or it could have been a really like artsy fartsy, you know, uh, pretentious movie. Um, instead, it, it was like it, it, it was, you know, it, it, it's the great meditation without the word meditation. And I think that's what he does, like in a lot of his movies. And I also think that even to this day, like, you know, the War of the Worlds that came out a few years ago, you know, there's there's a lot of underappreciated scenes in those movies where he really sort of holds his heart to Hitchcock. I, I think, you know, I can't I, I can't state enough how important small little scenes are and you can call them popcorn scenes, but they sort of get in your head like in, in, in Poltergeist. I remember the chairs, you know, Um that they set up on the table that freaked me out. And I, I know I can name a bunch of other directors who sort of, you know, copied that idea. And I think that goes back to the birds and, and Hitchcock with the crows on, you know, the, the monkey bars. But I do think that there's always a way to make ingenious scenes like that and sort of make them your own. But he has like, you know, a pot full of scenes like that in Close Encounters. I mean, he's got that He's got that scene when Roy wakes up the next day after the fight and his daughter's there eating Cheerios and she's watching like Bugs Bunny. And he's kind of smiling because he's like, yeah, I'm as crazy as Daffy Duck is. And he's like, I come to the resolution that I'm going to, you know, we're going to start over. I'm, I'm done with this. It's all going to be OK, Connie. And, you know, he, he, some, he somehow pulls the mountain off of the thing he's been building. And the revelation in that moment. And you hear like, you know, Daffy Duck's voice or something, and it's all quiet and there's no music. And he, he makes the connection to the mountain. And that's what Spielberg does. He's able to give these little small moments of revelations in films that just blow you away. Uh, you know, the scene with Indy, who's examining the, the idol in Raiders of the Lost Ark, trying to figure out how am I going to take this without the whole world caving in which it eventually does, but he's really good about giving these small moments of, uh, uh, I guess you can call them set pieces, but really they become sort of revelations in their own kind of quiet way. And, um, you know, Close Encounters in itself, the entire film is a revelation because it's like, we're going to take aliens and spaceships. Don't call them alien spaceships. Cause you laugh at me when I say that, you know, he was probably thinking, but I'm going to say the tone is here. We're not kidding. And it all works. And it's it, it, it spawned a generation of filmmakers who realize that there's power in the small moments and the subtleties. Join us for other episodes of How I Got Greenlit, like when we talk to Rosemead Hart, entertainment attorney who ironically came up with a very clear way to describe the storytelling process. This is such a time capsule too, because I want to go back and actually uh, rewatch the whole thing again now that we talked about it. But you know, it opens and he's playing oh, Galaga, right? Which we I did. Like, like so it was. Prep. It really was like it was a slice of life. Yeah, and that made the more fantastical like third act of where is this place under some mountain? You like, it, it. It seemed like sci-fi, and they were saying, "No, this is a real place. This really goes on." Yeah. It has the Star Wars like structure, right? Boy from nowhere, something crazy happens, gets sucked into an adventure, and then ends up in this bizarre world that he didn't know existed, you know? I yeah, guess it's, you a, it's a hero's right. journey, right? He yeah, makes things yeah. worse before he makes them better. 
he makes things worse before he makes them better. I like it. Experience more of How I Got Greenlit via ncpodcast.com. New episodes go live every Tuesday. Please subscribe, rate, and review on your app of choice. And now, back to How I Got Greenlit. My head goes to that obsessional close-up of Indy staring at the idol with the gold lighting his face. Like, he wants that thing, and that's what we want. We want a character that wants a thing, right? We Maybe we want to understand what he's looking for or she's looking for, but it's got to be driven by that character's obsession, whatever it is. I feel that this is a quintessential 70s movie with a protagonist that's got anti-hero tendencies. Like, let's really just examine what he does. They set him up as the middle American everyman, and then within the first 40 minutes, he dumps the whole family. Dumps Terry Gar, America's sweetheart at the time, by the way, Terry Gar, and three kids, and hits the road. So that's a tall order uh, for an audience now, but in the 70s, it's like, well, yeah, he's got to go. You know, it's like five easy pieces. He's got to hit the road and like find himself, you know? And so we're, we go with it. But I would say the Spielberg that came after that denied that kind of 70 sensibility and either was influenced by Reagan's 80s or ended up influencing Reagan's 80s because what's the, what's the sort of counterpoint to this movie? E.T., divorce family, aliens. I mean, it's got all the like points to it, but completely different treatment. The family is already broken up. The father and the whole thing has already happened. But I come away with a much sunnier disposition from that movie than I do from Third Close Encounters. He does the same thing in E.T. There's these small scenes. And, and, and it goes all the way through to Jurassic Park where they have these small scenes where, uh, you know, like Tony was talking about, I, you know, specifically like when they get out of the car and the I think it's a Triceratops is on its side and it's a very small moment sorry i have a problem with dinosaurs anyway so um just naming them correctly uh anyway uh it's a disease um the what the main the point is is that he does stay true to that 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 piece of his art form he's the he was he would that's what i'm trying to say is that he's the last 70s spielberg protagonist and the new one is Elliot, because after that, all his movies are very positive and cheery and happy endings and whatever. I, you could argue Close Encounters is a happy ending and a sad ending in the same way, right? The family's completely broken up. We never hear from him again. Roy, Roy literally leaves Earth. He's gone. He, he, he went out for a pack of cigarettes, and he ain't never coming back, right? And they haven't grown. Like this eight-year-old girl said, eight-year-old girl, her life is right. already kind the of pilots, the pilot, The pilots yeah. from World War II step into a world where, yeah. where they're not captured. I mean, it, it's, it's a haunting, beautiful like moment, but it's also like these people are going to be lost in this in this decade. And I think that speaks to what you guys are saying, that like every decade, you know, the, the director, to a certain extent, the you know the industry itself kind of conforms to you know what the culture and the politics is but it's it's those rare directors that always have their own their own way and vision of telling um 
defining and in keeping those moments that there's a consistency, you know, I mean, there's a consistency with, with close encounters. There's a consistency with Jaws. There's a consistency even with Jurassic Park about these small Hitchcock moments. And I don't think Spielberg would ever give that up. People, I mean, people always cite Schindler's List as the big emotional, beautiful Academy Award winning film, which it is, but people forget Close Encounters is nominated for Best Picture. And Melinda Dillon won, or she was nominated for Best Actress. And she never has a monologue of the entire movie. It's just about all her emotion, the fact that her little kid gets taken away. So that speaks a lot to a movie that is otherwise a, a, a summer popcorn movie that the market, that the studio wanted to market like that. But there are really like deep contemplative things in movies like Close Encounters, just there are in Schindler's List. There, there is some, there is some tales to be told about the making. Yeah. Of yeah. I mean, there's, there's, you know, this is, this is a script. This is a movie I saw when I was seven and I probably shouldn't have seen it like The Shining when <laughs> I saw when I was, you know, 10 years old. It was a yeah. bit much. My, well, my parents always had a tendency of bringing me to like, you know, more adult films, maybe because my mom didn't want to get a babysitter and she wanted me to have an education in more serious films. But I love I, lo I mean, I love the movie and I, I was one of those kids. And I'm sure there's a lot of writers that would probably agree with this that would write that would draw the mountain or something, you know, when they're at school, because those little moments had such an effect with me. But uh, it's definitely like one of those five films that has always resonated with me and it's interesting now is because you and i were having a kind of pre-conversation about um the younger generation of kids that you know have have seen this movie and your daughter you know liked it but she didn't love it and she had issues with it um, she said specifically she hated the back you know the cuts uh, she, the the thing that you we all love, which is the vignettes building suspense to try to figure out who the protagonist is, she that turned her off. She was like, I don't know who I'm, who's the hero, what am I doing, da 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 da. So some words to think about. There's probably a lot of people out there that don't like vignette movies, and they're like, when is this thing going to start to like have a graduation to a culmination to something? Um, it, which it does, but some people want something a little sooner. I mean, I have a niece that she's 15 and. This is a film she watches like all the time. It's like one of her favorite films. And I don't, I didn't turn her on to it. I don't know how she saw it, but you know, she loves it because I think she loves the striking images and she likes the set pieces, those ideas. Um, you know, there, there's, I mean, I, I think, I think the cliche that you love and hate is that he, you know, his, there's magic in his movies, but there kind of is, I mean, there's, it, it's sort of what you want to take from it, but um when he when he fires off one of these movies where it's you know simple little things like a guy talking about Bigfoot sticks in your memory when you're seven years old, I think you've done your job, you know. Um, and there's there's going to be other filmmakers that are going to sort of make their dent on the world and um, and 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 open up imagination for for writers and for kids and for anybody that just loves film or just loves the idea of storytelling, but um, he's, he's one of these directors who always is about sort of telling the story. And I used to kind of scoff at that when I was like a 21 year old punk. And I heard that in film school about tell a story, but there is, you have to sort of tell the story. Um, it's about what you, what you make it yours, which is kind of what counts. But, um, he definitely is, is, is a wonderful storyteller. And, um, you know, it's one of my favorite films. It's a fantastic movie. Um, Tony. Anyway, Tony, thank you so much yeah. 
Thank you, Tony, for joining uh, us today. Was, we could talk about this, obviously, for the next eight this hours. This was our pleasure, and love to have you back uh, again sometime. Tony Jaswinski, everyone. His film, The Shallows, is available on all platforms. This has been Greenlit. We've really enjoyed our time. Thank you for joining us. Alex? I'm Alex Collegian for uh, Ryan Gibson, Gibson, and we are Greenlit. Satan, drugs, therapy. It's not just the list of what I'm up to this weekend. I'm comedian Kiki Anderson, and those are just a handful of the taboo topics I've poked and prodded at so far on my podcast, Indecent, the show where we peel at the wallpaper of polite society. Each episode digs into the dark underbelly of our culture to dissect the things we aren't allowed to talk about around the dinner table, featuring conversations with comedians, activists, journalists, academics. They all help me figure out the who, what, and why behind what is and isn't acceptable behavior. And Decent with Kiki Anderson, where NSFW meets LMAO. Next Chapter Podcasts.